Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Honest Conversations with Alex Cubis, brought to you by Nova Entertainment. In this episode, I chat with John Carlo, actor and the co-writer behind Harvey Keitel's latest flick, First We Take Brooklyn, co-starring Annalyn McCord and Charlotte McKinney. John sits down with me to talk career paths, the dream, and full circle moments, involving being a waiter to an Oscar-nominated actor serving him breakfast in one year, to acting as their co-star in a feature film 10 years later. John, who has also appeared on popular shows like Parks and Recreation and Transparent, tells a great story involving the classic definition of luck being preparation meets opportunity, as well as a refreshingly vulnerable account of his journey that has seen him arrive in LA, take a three-year hiatus, and come back again. John and I also talk about the genesis of his writing process, as well as how a predisposition towards problem-solving informs his storytelling point of view. Listen in towards the end for his advice for actors, and through our chat, appreciate the ways in which humans just need to sometimes shut up and do. I am sitting with... I am John Carlo. John Carlo, actor, writer. Do you add any other titles to your hyphenate? Oh, so many hyphens. Um, aspiring director as well, cool. and, and producer, um, and amateur furniture maker. Amateur furniture is the table that yeah. we're on. You made this. Did wow. sure did. Cool. If you guys, if this was a, um, a <laughs> video recording of an interview, then you guys would see how impressive the table is. We're sitting on right now. It's a shame that it's just a podcast. <laughs> um, okay, John. I start off my interviews with this same four questions. Cool. I think I feel I need I want right in this moment. How would you answer those four questions? Uh, wow, that's a good one. Um, I think. I think I need to be uh, writing more and not procrastinating as much as I am at the moment. Okay. Um, I need to stop making excuses for not writing more. I feel uh, I feel a little um, embarrassed about admitting that, which is weird. And then what was the fourth one? I want. I want. I want, I want to stop making excuses for that. Cool. Yeah. That's a good starting point. And it's also good to be vulnerable. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, in your writing process, have you, or the starting point for your writing process, was it being vulnerable and a willingness to be open? What was the starting point for you? Um, it it kind of grew directly out of acting. Because I've been an actor for, you know, over 10 years. Um, and the frustration of not having a platform to, to like, act, to do my art. Because as an actor, unfortunately, especially in film and television, you need to be hired. You need an audience. Even if you're doing a play, you can't do that in isolation. Yep. And so when you're in Hollywood and you're just auditioning, auditioning, and nothing's, you know, really coming to fruition, I started needing like another creative out, outlet. And so writing kind of came out of two things. One was just I need to do something creative that I can do on my own. And also the second one was if no one's going to give me a role that I want, I'll just write it for myself. Great. And that's kind of how it all started. And, um, you know, cut to now, um, you know, there's a movie out, but it really started from just being frustrated with the industry and with, you know, waiting. So you moved to LA when you were 20? 
I moved to LA when I was in my, I think, early 20s. I would say maybe 22, 23. Okay. After college? Yeah. And then you were, started with the grind of being an actor here. Yeah. Work, being um, an actor, taking acting classes, waiting tables during the day, bartending at night, just doing anything. Did you feel yeah. like you were living a cliche? Um, in the beginning, no. Because in the beginning, you're so excited by just being here mm-hmm. that it takes time to realize that you have become a cliche Okay, in a way. Like once like all the dust settles and you, you know, the, like the, the magic of being in LA and then you realize like, oh my God, there's like a million of me here doing exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you start to get, you know, like a mild depression. So you talked about, before we started this chat, you told me how you were here for four or five years, yeah. then you moved away for three years and then you've come back. Right. What precipitated the move away, and was that you feeling like you actually were giving up? It's a, it, it's it, it's exactly that. It wasn't really giving up as much. It was more like, you know, I moved here for a specific reason. I moved here to be an actor. I moved here to act, and I realized after like three, four, five years that like I wasn't doing that. I wasn't. I was like, I was barely even taking acting classes anymore. Okay, so you weren't. You fa- it sort of your interest actually tapered off. It wasn't the interest. It was it was more of like, um, you know, because to be an actor, I guess, you don't necessarily have to be acting all the time. You can still be at home reading a play, memorizing lines, yeah. memorizing monologues, doing workshops, doing classes. And I wasn't doing that. I realized I did that when I first started okay. in L.A. Then after time, you get frustrated and you're like, what am I wasting this money for? Yeah. And so I was just literally just like working to live, okay. bartending, waiting tables, partying drinking and having fun and then that really started to like weigh on me and then out of the blue an old friend from college who's from this tiny little town in northern california um the population is like a thousand people it's right on the coast she called me and she was like hey john they're doing a play in this little town that i live in and they need like a young leading guy to be like the lead of the play would you want to come up for two months and do the play i was like absolutely I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Just a cre- like an, an, opportunity an opportunity to just yes. act for no money. They put me up and I was like, yeah. Did you have representation in LA by this point? I did. I had... Uh, so you felt like you had built up some momentum. Yeah, I had a little bit of momentum, but it yeah. was the same thing. It was like I had a manager, I had a commercial agent. I was going out on auditions all the time, but it was... I started being bored of auditioning. What sort of stuff I mean? were you auditioning for? It's like I remember commercials were always like consistent. Mm-hmm. It was always, um, you know, I've probably gone on thousands of commercial auditions. And commercials are so different from film and television because commercials are 98% about how you look and your, your personality, your vibe. So you don't have to prepare really for a commercial audition. You show up and say, what's your name? Tell me a fun fact about you. And then they're like, thank you. What's the fun, what was the fun fact for you? It, it would change. Like I, I started being honest. Like, oh, I really like to cook. And then I would start like fucking around and yeah. make up stuff just to get a reaction out of the casting director, okay. which I found to work sometimes because, you know, for them, it's like they're seeing thousands of people. So what was an example of something crazy that worked? I think like I was like, I can walk on my hands for hours yeah. or something. Oh, that was a lie. Yeah. Oh, right. And they're like, let's see it. And I was like, oh, shit. And I managed to like do a couple yeah. for five, six seconds, and okay. I fell. Right. I got a laugh out of them. I didn't book the job, though. 
So, okay. you know, which so is, yeah. you're on that audition process and yeah. obviously going out for commercials and I'm guessing the occasional like TV. Very rarely job. I would go out for TV and film and it was always like waiter number three. Okay. And like bartender two. And right. it was always like one line. And I'm, and I'm like. This isn't what I came out here for. Yeah. But it's not even that. It's like, how many different ways can you do that? And I go to the audition and there'd be like 30 dudes mm-hmm. who kind of look just like me waiting for a line. I'm like, wow. That's not very stimulating. It's like, but it's also rolling the dice. It's like, how many variations of this line? Like, is there going to be a guy that walks in and says, can I get you some more water? In a way that is like, the casting director's like, oh my God, did you see how he delivered that line? So you had been going through that experience yeah. and then you got offered to do this play. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. you already told me this before about what you ended. You, you stayed in that town after doing this play because you... Well, I didn't know. So, okay. you know, I, I tell my roommates, I'm like, guys, listen, I'm going up. I tell my, my work, my job, I'm, yeah. I'll be away for two months. Uh-huh. Like, I basically quit. Was so it in like, the summer? It was in the summer, end of summer, like August. And so I go up um, and I do the play and I just fall in love with this town. It's like this hippie town on the coast of California, you got redwood trees, the ocean, everyone in town is a pot grower. Uh, and it was just like, the play was amazing. Very like, it's exactly what I needed as like an artist to kind of like reinvigorate that creative spirit. Yeah. And then when the play ended, I was like, you know what? I want to just stay one more month. And just kind of hang out because I was rehearsing so much. So I call my roommate. I'm like, hey, buddy, I'll be back in another month. And then that month turned into another month and another month. And then after like six months, my roommate's like, dude, what's going on? Were you paying rent? I was. Oh. I was still paying rent down here. Okay. But because we had three roommates, it was like, yeah. you know, five, six hundred bucks a month. Yeah. And I started working in the marijuana f- business up there. So I was making money and living for free. And then eventually I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay. I'm not coming back. Like, I'm just loving this. And did you think that when you realized that, that you weren't going to be an actor anymore? No, because what happened was I was, so this town is two and a half hours north of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't really, I, the thought never crossed my mind that I'm done with acting. It was always like I'm taking a break. And then after about a year up there, I realized that San Francisco is a big hub for commercials and industrials. So I just sent an email to an agent. They're like, yeah, we'll sign you. And then I started going out on auditions up there, driving like two and a half hours each way. But I was like booking work like great. I booked a, a Super Bowl commercial. Okay. I booked tons of industrials, tons of work. And all of a sudden, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do in LA, but in San Francisco. And that was amazing. But then I realized after three years that there was a very low ceiling. And I reached that ceiling and that was it. So, could, and then what was the moment where you realized you reached the ceiling? When like, I remember like, it was like me and this other guy named John with a different agent. And it was, it would always be us at the same audition and either he'd book it or I book it. Okay. He book, And we would laugh about it. I was like, you're my nemesis. He's like, you're my nemesis. And I was just like, well, and then I, you know, through Facebook, I started seeing like some friends here in LA, like doing really good stuff, like television, film, all this stuff. And I was like, I started feeling that like, Jealousy, like right. envy, but not in a negative way. Like, oh my God, I'm so proud of them. And inspired. Yeah. Inspired to act sort of way. Right. Yeah. And so I was like, I think it's time to come back. And, and the moment I decided to come back. Which you were 29 at this point? I was 29. Okay. Yeah, 29. The guy that took over my room here called me and said, hey, John, I'm moving out. Do you want your old room back? Like literally, it was like synchronicity. 
You didn't plan it that way. No. Just, uh, I didn't know where I was going to live yet because I gave up my room. Yeah. And it was just like, I was like, that's a sign. In this in this amazing rent-controlled apartment yeah. we were talking about before, by the way. That's why that is in piece of information is important. Yes. Um, okay. And then now you've been back for how many years? So now I've been back in LA five years. Okay. Yeah. What about the narrative with First We Take Brooklyn? How did that, at what point did that, do you remember that starting yeah. between then and then a month or two ago when it was officially released? I started writing when I first got back to LA on the second incarnation okay. because I just wanted to find a different creative outlet, like okay. I was saying yep. earlier. Yep. And so um, I remember uh, I went to Sundance the year before, mm. just as a, you know. For kicks. Yeah. yeah. And it was amazing. I was so inspired. And I was like, I want to get into Sundance. So I looked up and they have this thing called the Sundance Screenwriters Lab, mm-hmm. where it, if you get in, like only 10 people per year get in, they fly you up to Sundance for a week and they give you like an intensive writing um, retreat with like the biggest writers in the industry, free. Mm. I'm like, yo, I want to do that. So I look up online, I check all the research and the only thing you need to do to submit is the first 10 pages of a script, your bio, creative statement, another essay, and that's it. So I got back to LA. I had this idea for a movie that I've always wanted to write about like soldiers suffering from PTSD, traveling the world, doing drugs, all this stuff. Mm. Um, and so I wrote the first 10 pages and sent it in. And I forgot about it because like, you know, it takes a while. And then like seven months later, I get an email saying, congratulations, John, you've been accepted into the next round. No Please way. submit your full script in 10 days. <laughs> you didn't have it. Nothing. <laughs> like, see, I had 10 pages. Yeah, right. And so I remember I was like in this apartment, different table. And I, I locked the door mm. and I didn't leave. And I just wrote like a madman for nine days. Had one day, brought my friends over, had a table read, fixed a couple of things and sent it in. Finished the script, 120 pages. And then two weeks later, like, congratulations, you're in the final round. Wow. I was like, what the? F-? And then I didn't get in okay. at the end. Right. But that just inspired so me. Close, yeah. yeah. And so I had this script that I never thought I could finish. I thought, I'm like, that takes about a year to write. I wrote in 10 days. I'm like, yeah. this is all self-imposed limitations. Like anything is possible if you just shut up and do it. Yeah. And then, yeah. so yeah. that's how Brooklyn came about because at that time, a really good friend of mine was meeting with this dude that I knew of named Danny A. Uh, you know, my family's Israeli. Uh, Danny A's Israeli. Uh, and Danny so, A is a director, producer as well. He's a producer, director, Lead actor. actor and nightclub of, of first we take book. Yeah. yeah and just like a really famous dude cuz he hangs out with famous people he's like a nightclub uh, uh promoter promoter right? Slash owner. and owner yeah, yeah. and so um and he's going to be in the Martin Scorsese's says he's the Irishman yeah yeah next yeah. year coming out next year he yeah. he has some intense scenes with De Niro awesome yeah Very so cool. cool and so my buddy went to meet with him and so i said if you have an opportunity, just mention my script. Because the one I wrote for Sundance was about Israeli soldiers okay. suffering from PTSD. I figured he's Israeli. You know, they're like Aussies. Like, they all congregate together. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, my buddy Jay was like, yeah, no problem. And he goes, and next thing I know, I get an email from Danny. He's like, hey, Jay, said that, that, that. send me your script right now. And I sent him the first one, the last ones, it's called. The one that you submitted to Sundance. Right. Right, Okay. And he reads it and gets back and he's like, 
John, I read your script. I'll never make this movie in my life. But I like your writing. Let's have a meeting. Okay. So I'm like, okay. We go, we sit down at the Beverly Hills Hotel or whatever. Like, he's a flashy guy. And he's had like... He been in, had he been in the industry by that by this point, though? Yeah. Or was he still so, very much in nightclub promotion? No, no, no. At this point, this like he's four, already... four years ago? No, no, no. This is flash forward to, I would say, three years. Oh, okay. Two and a half to three years ago. Right, cool. At this point, he's already done three movies. Okay. Um, uh, produced them. He hasn't directed yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first movie he did was amazing. Got into Sundance, all the stuff. His second two movies were, eh, you know, whatever, okay. not great. Um, and then he was looking to make this new movie about an Israeli gangster, and he didn't really know what, but he saw my writing and and saw that I could write for Israelis. I speak Hebrew fluently, so does he. Wow, cool. And so he was like, "I want to hire you to write this movie for me. I don't know if we're gonna make it, but I'll pay you like you know five grand to write a movie." Great. I was like. Kidding me? Yeah, like right. I, I've only written one yeah. thing. Are you going to pay me to write? Yeah. Done. Yes. Not knowing that, like a yeah. screenwriter gets paid twenty five grand to write, a <laughs> but that's besides the yeah. point. Or by a studio, three hundred right. grand. Exactly. Yeah. But I would have done it for free. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I write the movie, and you know, we go back and forth, a couple drafts. I send him the final draft, and he's like, "Okay, cool. We're going to shoot in two months. I'm, I'm greenlighting it. I'm financing it myself. He's going to finance it himself. Yeah. Wow." And then that's how First We Take Brooklyn What was, was the born. budget for um, First We Take Brooklyn? Not allowed, to, not say. allowed to say. Unfortunately, I can't. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. I can't say it. Okay. And um, yeah, just because there's like distribution sure, stuff and sure, all those sure. things. So, yeah. So, how did it, um, did it go through multiple drafts between you submitting that version that he hired yeah. you to oh, yeah. shooting? How many drafts and we, how, how did you go we, about that process? We probably went through like 10 different drafts. So this was really like the second thing that you wrote. Second script I've ever written in my life. And it got made into a film right. with Harvey Keitel. Yeah. How did that make you feel? It was happened? surreal. It was crazy. It all happened so quickly. I didn't have time for it to kind of like settle. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, next thing I know, I'm in New York shooting the movie and I'm acting in it as well. And all my scenes are with Harvey Keitel, like this legend. And then... So there's an interesting, sorry to cut you off, yeah. there's an interesting story you were telling me before we started this chat about your full circle moment. Yes. Um, do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I first moved to LA and I was waiting tables, the first job I got was at this restaurant in Venice Beach. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're new to a restaurant job, they give you the worst shift, which is the breakfast shift, you know. Because you have to get up so early. You have to get up early and it's not much money. No one's drinking. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know. Bad tips. Yeah. And so I remember like my first week there, Harvey Keitel is coming in every morning for breakfast. I guess they were shooting something in the area. And I would wait on him every morning for like three weeks. This is around 2007? This is, yeah, 2007, 2006, 2007. Yeah. Cool. And then cut to now, 10 years later, I remember I was in an office in... Manhattan with Harvey Keitel and we're rehearsing our scene that we're going to be shooting the next day together. Mm. And it was such a, like a punch in the face. Like, like, do you realize like the full circle moment that's happening right now? And it was just amazing. It was just like completely surreal. And you could have never told yourself 10 years ago that that would have happened. Never. You You wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. If someone was like, you know, maybe you'll be in a movie with Harvey in 10 years. I was like, fuck off. So then what kept you going? Uh, if you didn't believe that something like that would be possible. You know, I think it's like part of it is just being stubborn. Okay. I'm like a very stubborn person. 
and which has allowed is me... Is it Israeli in you, or...? Is, it could be the Israeli. My dad's from Argentina. Okay. They're also very stubborn yeah, as well. right. Okay. And just, I think, I'm, I'm the kind of person that... I just think that I could learn anything. Just give me give me an opportunity, and I'll figure it out. I'm like, I'm, the, I'm like a yes man. They're like, hey, John, can you do some... Yeah. Problem solver. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But then... I put myself in situations sometimes that are like compromising in a way because I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm always able to figure it out because of technology. Because I was like, I want a dining table. I just look on YouTube. I had a built dining table. And I was like, cool. So is the furniture making thing a recent hobby? Very. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Just out of like, I can't afford a $2,000 table. Right. So I'm going to make one myself for 300 bucks. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And what do you, where do you attribute that? What do you attribute that to? You know, problem solving this, which yeah. has obviously been a great tool or skill for you to sustaining and continuing with a career in the industry. Yeah. Is that childhood? Is that... It's a good question. I, I don't think I've really had that moment of self-reflection. Um, I don't know. I think I, maybe... I'm trying to think. I've always been like that. Just like, you know, a stubborn problem solver. And, and I just have, I think it actually comes down to like confidence in yourself where you just think anything's possible. I can do it myself and having the internet at our disposal. I think like my generation is like the last generation that had no internet and then internet. So we have that dichotomy Yeah, right. where most people today grew up with it. just grew up with it. It's like you can't fathom right. without it. Yeah. And so, you know, people who grow up poor and end up rich appreciate that money way more than people who've had it their whole life. So you feel like you appreciate resourcefulness. Yeah. And the access to information and technology and cameras. And we have so many tools at our disposal to make a million dollar looking movie for nothing. What drew you to acting in the first place? If you have this practicality. Right. Because I feel like that is also something of a contradiction. I don't really know. I just have the early memories of like being a child and like, remembering with my older brother like picking a movie to watch and i was like oh, i don't want to watch the ninja turtles because then after i watch it, i'm gonna have to become one for the whole day and i don't want to become a ninja turtle like i had this compulsion of like i would morph into whatever i saw interesting you know what i mean and so like i just remember You're always youngest oh, i'm the youngest okay. yeah i have a two-year older brother okay um and and i have a 20 year younger half brother okay as well right um but yeah, I just remember always uh, playing make-believe and pretending. I think it kind of stems from that. But I only got into acting very late. I got into it in college. You, so what did you study in college? I was a psychobiology major. And uh, theater on the side? Is that, like, that's uh, it was started? a dark secret because my dad you know, was like, you have to be a doctor. Yeah, doctor right. do, do. So I was pretending to go to pre-med, meanwhile taking theater classes on the side. And it just kind of like that whole concept of the bug like you do you get yeah. yeah you catch this bug of something being on stage in front of people so even while you were away in the small town up northern california the bug didn't go away no you were still very much attached to it but just trying to yeah figure out a way to do it differently i guess and just try to reconnect to like the the foundation of that art form because mm-hmm. in la it's hard to fathom acting without a camera because mm-hmm. very few people do theater here mm-hmm. but in college all you i did was theater i was trained in theater and so reconnecting back to the original art form is really inspiring because you get that direct connection with an audience, mm. you know? What advice would you give to the aspiring writer or actor listening? You know, I'd say this to everyone. It's 
um, you have to create your own content. Mm -hmm. You cannot wait around for the right audition, for the right uh, moment, casting director, whatever, because it's probably not going to happen. Just because of the sheer numbers of people trying to do the same thing you're doing, and if in anything in life, if you're um, not proactive, it's just you eliminate so many opportunities. Because your in your instance, it sort of was a classic example of luck is preparation meets opportunity. Right. You had a draft of a script, right, which you had already submitted completely on your own volition for a Sundance thing, and then through a random friend connection, there was this guy who wanted a script for a movie that happened to be in your ballpark or right. wheelhouse as a writer. And then it just happened. Yeah. And you couldn't have predicted that. No, and there's no way. And I'm sure there were many opportunities that I missed in the past. Because, because you weren't prepared. Right. So, and so this are, time, there, are there some instances that you would go back and tell yourself five, ten years ago that oh you should God. be more prepared? What's an example? Oh, uh, man. I just wish that when I first moved to LA, the first thing I did was get some friends together, get a camera, and just start shooting things. Mm. Because I, it's actually funny. I, f I forgot about this. But when I first moved from, I grew up in Toronto, moved to California for college at 18, met a bunch of guys, and we made a movie. We actually like made an independent film no for like 400 bucks was called it? Suburban Youth. Okay. And it was all just literally like, we, we feature film uh, with some home video camera in college, and it was the worst film ever, <laughs> ever, which is understandable because yeah. we, we didn't know how to do anything. Yeah, right. But we finished it. And then I remember watching with my buddies, and we were so heartbroken because we were like, this doesn't look like a real movie, <laughs> you know? And I wish I would have told myself back then, don't give up. Like, don't get disheartened. Don't I didn't, be discouraged by yeah, the fact that that didn't I didn't go right. back to filmmaking and writing for another, like, six years after that. And if I would have kept like learning the process and, and keep, then by now I would have had 10 scripts written. Mm -hmm. And so if there's any advice I could give to anyone is your first project is going to be dog shit mm -hmm. and be okay with that mm -hmm. because that's part of the learning process. Your first monologue is going to be crap. Your first acting job, you know, my first lead role in the movie was in this film called um, Empty about like America running out of gas and a couple stuck in the woods and it was a cool okay. concept. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you watch the film, it's unwatchable mainly because of me and the other lead actress and like, it was just like, you didn't think your performance is good? Terrible. Okay. Like the comments on IMDb are like, uh, my favorite one was like, it's kind of like a porno but without the sex. <sighs> and, and like, but that's fine. Yeah. Because like, you're, you're not gonna, no one, unless you start acting or anything as a child takes time to develop. And so just don't be afraid and, and just keep creating something. How have you handled or dealt with or received the response with First We Take Brooklyn, given that there's been a good amount of press? Yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah. Different like levels of reviews. Like how, how have you? The reviews have been, it? you know, overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, there's always... But I, try, I don't really take the reviews. It's more of like the film came in number 13th in the country per screen. Great, yeah. You know, and it was re it received great and we're having a lot of like momentum and there's other projects. But like the hardest thing is I'm finding it hard to write now. Like I was saying in the beginning. Okay. Like shut up and write. Yeah. Because, because of the noise? The noise and also there's this weird thing. I can see why one hit wonders. I'm not saying this movie is like a hit, but I can see why that whole concept of someone creates something amazing and then they never do anything again. And I, it's because 
they're afraid that their next project might not be as successful as the previous one. Mm -hmm. And you create all these blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, So you feel like you're dealing with those blocks right now? Yeah. And I read this amazing book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, yeah. And she wrote the second book because she went to the deepest, darkest depression after Eat, Pray, Love, Mm -hmm. which was like one of the biggest selling books in history. Mm -hmm. And it's because she felt like there was no way she could Live live up to that. And then she came up with this concept that she's just the vessel as, a, as an artist. And whatever comes through you, you don't own. And it alleviated that pressure. Wow. And I'm like, wow, that's such a... So I'm going to try that. I'm going to try to like... <clears throat> I'm just the vessel. Whatever comes through me comes through me. And if I write it and it sucks, then so be it. It's not my responsibility. Is your writing process you sitting down in your house or whatever with a laptop and then just seeing what comes out or how do you generally follow through with I need more structure I need I'm a very avid like outliner okay so what I'll do is I'll spend most of the time outlining through bullet points Hmm. you know I'll break it down first act second act third act and then this is all self-taught yeah this is all self-taught through um, trial and error okay Um, you know I've read every writing book I've listened to every interview and nothing is the same. Every it's different for everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you have to. That's find, how you access your uniqueness. Exactly. Yeah. And you have to find your own method. Yeah. And once I have the outline, then I feel like I have structure. Um, but then it allows. It's so weird. I remember um, I, I was in an acting conservatory program, and one of my teachers was like, "There's freedom through structure." And mm-hmm. he, what he would make us do is, he would make us do a physical score, so every line. You'd write down, scratch head, walk 10 paces, look left, look right. And so you would memorize your lines and your blocking. Right. And then what would happen is because you had this like rigid structure of physicality, there were moments in between because I knew exactly where I had to be the next beat. Between those two beats, I could do anything and not get lost. And he was like, that's a freedom through structure. And it was still true yeah. to the given circumstances. Yeah. And you wouldn't... It wasn't just being weird or right. whatever. Yeah. And like on stage or whenever you kind of go off script, there's that fear of like, am I going to be able to get back mm-hmm. to where I need to be? And so with writing, once I have that outline, I can, I can go way off of it and allow for those moments of inspiration where, you know, things happen in the moment creatively. So if I have an outline, it allows me to kind of venture off. And then if I need to, I have a guide, a map to come back. What are your goals for the next like five years? To write, direct, and act in a movie. Cool. To do it all. Okay. Yeah. In the one movie? Yeah. I want to, I want to see what it's like to, to... I don't know if I'll be successful at it, but there's so many people that I've respected that I look up to um, who like can do that, like the Duplass brothers. Yep. And, you know, even way back, like Warren Beatty or Clooney does it, Clooney does it, Woody Allen. And so I'd love to try that um, and see how that feels. I may hate it. I may never do it again. But you want to do it. But I just feel like I I really want to see what that's like. Uh, In the same genre as First We Take Brooklyn? No, no. I'm open to anything. Like right now, my next project, I do want to go back and rewrite The Lost Ones. Okay. Because I do feel like. There's, That's a script that got into Sundance. Yeah, yep. yeah. There's there, the finalists. Yeah, there's like a. It's in the zeitgeist right now with all the wars and PTSD yeah. and everything that's happening in the world. And then I'm writing. I'm almost done my next script, which is a horror film. Cool. That is kind of like they along sell. the lines of Get Out. Right. Okay. 
that kind of genre. Okay. Yeah. Do you mean in terms of a racially charged horror film or something that's subversive and darkly comical? More the latter, but also okay. um, instead of race, I'm focusing on relationships. Okay. Uh, I think the magic of Get Out was it was a very poignant political film wrapped up in a horror film blanket. Yeah. And so I'm doing, I want to do the similar thing, but with relationships and like the battle between monogamy and hedonism because that's something that everyone I think can relate to mm. and then put a little horror film blanket around that. I think it's timely given that I only saw a video today about the decline of the romantic comedy. Yeah. So if anything, right, that's an interesting... It's a dark romantic comedy. ...on that exactly. uh, genre, which interesting. is sort of deserving of a bit of a renaissance, I guess. Yeah. So we'll look out for that. Do you have a title or like any... I do. You do? I have a title. Are you it's, allowed to say? Yeah. You, yeah, put it out there. It's called Feed. Feed. Yeah. Okay. Well... By any luck, um, given the stories that you guys have heard today with the full circle moments um, and not knowing where tomorrow will take you, I think we'll be seeing feed on either Netflix or in cinemas in, we could say in the next couple of months. Hey man, Let's from just your say, mouth to yeah. God's ears. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, thank you so much, John, for thank you, being a great guest. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, feel free to reach out to John on, you're on Twitter. Twitter, at Giancarlo. Instagram, I am John Carlo, and Facebook, John Carlo. Yeah, continue the conversation there. Ask me any questions. And until next time.